0: Take your Bible, if you would, and be finding the book of James, James chapter number one. It's near the end of your New Testament. Find the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible. Take a hard left and come back through a couple of very small books, two, three, four, and you'll land where we're going to be all the way through the month of January, and that is in the important letter of the book of James. You know, uh, as a pastor, people have often asked me about favorites, Pastor, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? Uh, Pastor, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Anybody ever ask you that? In fact, sitting here today, you've probably got a favorite of your own. It's always hard for me to, to uh, answer that question because, truth be told, I've got a number of favorite places that are go-to places in the Bible. My favorite book of the Bible is usually the one I'm studying at any given moment. Last time I checked, it was all God's Word. He authored every bit of it through human agency, but he's the ultimate author. And so, uh, man, I'm interested in everything my Lord has to say. Based on my experience with uh, common run-of-the-mill, everyday followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, in fact, sometimes I ask them that question. You know, we get into a discussion, and maybe they'll ask me that question, and I'll turn around and ask them that. And usually, when I ask people, what's your favorite book of the Bible, I'll get most of the time, nine times out of 10, I'll get one of three responses. People will say either the Gospel of John, uh, or they'll say uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, or they'll say the letter to James. It's almost always one of those three. Now, let me just say, when I posted several weeks ago that our next series was going to be James. I got all these positive responses. I am so glad to hear this. Pastor, I love me some James. Uh, Man, this is my favorite book of the Bible. And I knew that was coming because I've had lots of conversation with people about the letter of James through the years. And let me say, when people identify the gospel of John or the letter of the Philippians as their favorite book of the Bible, I totally get that. For most people, John is their initial introduction to the personality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, if you want to know the genuine identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the gospel of John and its uniqueness and its power and its depth and yet its simplicity. It's the most memorized verses in the Bible come out of the gospel of John. Get that. And what, they, what is there not to love about the letter to the Philippians? You know what I'm saying? 22 times in four short chapters, some form of the word joy is used. It's the most joyful book in the whole Bible. So we get that. But James, to me, anyway, when it comes to favorites, is a little more perplexing. And you know why? Because every time I read the little letter of James, I come away with the same conclusion. You know what it is? James is hard. James is hard, and if you don't walk away from it with that conclusion, you need to read it again, and you need to slow down as you read it, because when I read the letter to James, I find James is all about trials and testing. I find that James majors on the mouth and the sins of speech, almost an entire chapter given to the sins of the tongue. James has some of the most confusing teaching in the New Testament, teaching uh, to use his language about being justified by works. When I thought the Bible clearly taught we're justified not by works, but by faith, and yet the language James uses is that we're justified by works. And so that's kind of confusing. I read James and it castigates me because I don't care enough about the poor. Does that make anybody else feel guilty in the house? That we just keep driving right on by the poor that we see every day and don't think a thing about it anymore? I'm convicted of that every time I read James. Or that I don't care enough about the orphan. Or that I don't care enough about widows. James is all about being too casual in our decision making. Being too casual about how we approach God in worship. James hits me right between the eyes. You know why? Because I don't pray enough. And he'll say something in there very directly near the end of the book about the necessity of prayer and how there's only maturity in prayer. I mean, when you read James, you're, you're confronted by an author who issues more commands than any other author in the New Testament. Did you know that? 59 commands in 108 verses. That's all it's in the book of James. Do, 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 don't, don't, don't. I didn't think we liked that. I didn't think we liked people who told us what to do all the time. And yet that's all James does is tell you what to do. And then when he tells you what to do and you realize you're really not doing it all that consistently, does that not convict anybody else in the house this morning? And so it was kind of confusing to me until I was reminded that all throughout the years, my 25 years in the gospel ministry plus, I was reminded of all the myriads of people who have come up to me through the years after a very direct sermon that I preached, who've come up to me and they've said, oh, pastor, you really just stepped all over our toes today. And his wife would look up at him and say, oh yes, wasn't it wonderful? (laughs) You know, I've had that happen so many times through the years. And so when you think about it, the popularity of James really does make sense because people may say they don't like to be told what to do, but frankly, people want to be told what to do. I mean, because there's something that's calming and encouraging about knowing that you're doing the right thing in the right way. Isn't that right? There's nothing more frustrating to a worker than not knowing what they're supposed to be doing. I mean, that's the most frustrating thing in the world. And so I think it's especially true spiritually. People want to know what they're doing. They want to be told how to do it and why it's important. And they want to be brought back. If they're spiritually growing and strong, they want to be brought back to where they need to be if they've strayed somewhere off the straight and narrow. So God's people are attracted to the letter to James because it is so direct and because it's so practical. James is probably the most practical piece of correspondence that you find anywhere in the New Testament. So if you're one of those believers here today who sometimes get confused about life and you long for somebody, just shoot straight with me, man. Don't beat around the bush. Just shoot straight with me. Be direct with me. Tell me what to do. Then you're going to love the book of James. And it will become one of your favorites in all the Bible. Now today, uh, I just want to spend a few minutes introducing uh, introducing you to the letter itself. And then for a number of weeks, we're going to be diving deep into James and we're going to discover some really great truth from what is a very helpful, though very direct letter. Being reminded all the while that what? Say it together with me. James is what? James is hard. That's right but James will be worth it. So join me, if you would, in the first chapter of James, if you're not there already, and let's begin today by asking four very important questions just to get us going. First of all, who wrote the letter? Well, here's the way the letter begins. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, let's just stop there. That'll be pretty much where we make our jump off point this morning. You say, well, who wrote the letter to James? I think we're safe to saying it was somebody named James. Amen. Because that's like the first word right out of the gate. But the question is, James who? I mean, who is this guy who identifies himself as James here? And that's, you know, engendered a lot of uh, discussion and debate through the years. Because as you read the pages of the New Testament, you run into four men named James. Uh, The first of them is James, the father of Judas, not Judas the traitor, not Judas Iscariot, but another Judas. Judas was a very common name. That James, James, the father of Judas, is a very obscure figure. He's only mentioned one time in the New Testament and only to distinguish his son from like the other notorious Judas. So I think we're safe to rule him out very quickly. We know absolutely nothing about him other than he had a son named Judas. Second, there's James, the son of Alphaeus, a little bit more significant because James, the son of Alphaeus, was one of two Jameses who were the original 12 disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. There have been a lot of uh, very important people through the years that tried to make an argument that it was this James. But the fact of the matter is, we know very little about James, the son of Alphaeus. He's only mentioned typically uh, in the longer listings of the 12 disciples of Jesus that you find in the gospel accounts. Other than that, we just don't know that much about him. So he's probably too obscure to have written a letter that was accepted by the church and contains such incredible gravity as the letter to James does. And then thirdly, there's James, the son of Zebedee. Now he's a little bit more familiar figure. He's also one of the original 12 disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, the son of Zebedee, he was a fisherman by training, and we uh, we run across him in the early stages of the gospel accounts when Jesus uh, finds he and his brother John, also a son of Zebedee, fishing, and he calls them to follow him. He tells them, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And James and John leave the boat, leave their father sitting in the boat, And they leave their workaday world behind, and they go on to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's this James, James the son of Zebedee, James the brother of John the apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in your New Testaments. It's this James, who was one of the three most intimate friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter, James, and John, right? It's this James, James the son of Zebedee. So We think, okay, he's got a brother that wrote a huge swath of the New Testament, John, and he was with Jesus, very intimate, probably closer to Jesus than Jesus' own half-brothers were, but it's highly unlikely that he's the author of this letter, even though he makes a super great candidate. You say, well, how do you know that he's not? Because he died too early. This letter was probably written after this particular James, James the son of Zebedee, was killed. The Bible tells us that he was killed by the sword, and that would have taken place in the early 40s A.D. This letter was probably written in the late 40s A.D. And so James, the son of Zebedee, popular though he was, and as close to Jesus as he was, probably was not the author <coughs> Excuse me of the letter. And then that leaves us with a fourth James that's mentioned in the New Testament, and that is James, the brother of Jesus Christ or better yet, we probably should refer to him more correctly as James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. James, this James, would have been the natural-born son of Joseph and Mary. They did have other children, we learn in Scripture, and he wasn't always a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there was times, you know, man is not without honor except in his own hometown, Jesus said, and that was especially true among the Uh, earthly family of the Lord Jesus Christ, outside of his father and mother, of course. Um, But those brothers of his typically scoffed at him, probably as a result of jealousy. But later on, we know that this James, James the half-brother of the Lord, certainly became a believer after the resurrection, and after he had seen Jesus in his glorified state, Sometimes James, the brother of Jesus, is referred to as James, the just, James of Jerusalem, or James, the son of Joseph. It's all the same guy. Most of the time, he's referred to simply as the brother of the Lord, and he became a hugely important figure in the church because he became the first, what we would call senior pastor, presiding bishop, chief elder of the very first local church. And that is, of course, the church at Jerusalem, that church that was born in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit fell there that day at Pentecost. And Peter got up and began to preach there in Jerusalem. And 3,000 souls were saved in a day. I would have loved to have been there, wouldn't you? That, would have been, that was one of the greatest days in the history of the church. And it, I mean, instantly, you've got a mega church, 3,000 in the church, plus family members, bang. And they needed a leader. And that leader became this guy right here, James, the half-brother of the Lord. Now, many of you just a few weeks back earlier this year when we were studying Galatians may remember in the first chapter of Galatians, Paul gives his testimony and says, you know what? There came a time I went down to Jerusalem to meet with the pillars of the church. And he had a personal audience for the very first time, Paul did, now as a converted Jew, A follower now, not a persecutor, but a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a personal meeting there in Jerusalem with who? With James. With this James. In fact, Paul would have two meetings with James this one, and then later on, Acts chapter 15, at what was called the Jerusalem Council, when there was all this controversy about how Gentiles could become Christians. Did they have to be circumcised? Or was salvation just a matter of faith? Y'all remember that discussion. Please say amen this morning. Well, it was James in Jerusalem, Pastor James, half-brother of Jesus, that heard the case. And together with the other elders of the church, threw the gavel down and said, we need to receive these guys. And he sends a letter back with Paul and Barnabas back to the church at Antioch, try to get things all cleared up. That's this James. James. So when you think about it, when you think about this critically important position that he had, I mean, senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, somebody say amen, that's like a big deal, right? And I am convinced it was a Baptist church, amen. So he's got a heavyweight position. He's got a heavyweight family. I mean, when you go around saying Jesus is my brother and not from another mother, I mean, you're gonna get some attention Are you not? So you take all those things together, not to mention that what we call the early church fathers, I mean, men like Augustine and Origen and Irenaeus and Jerome and all these guys that wrote in the early centuries of Christianity almost unanimously point to this James as the author of the letter of James. It's almost certain that that's who we're talking about. So for our purposes, we're going to proceed with what's known as the traditional view that James pastor of the Jerusalem church, half-brother to the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who wrote the letter, this piece of correspondence we have in our Bibles, called James. That makes sense? Everybody with me, say amen. So that answers the first question, who wrote the letter? Second, to whom was the letter written? This is a little more sketchy here because, you know, when you read a guy like Paul, most of the time, Paul, man, makes it very clear who he's writing to, Right? To the Galatians, to the Romans, to the Thessalonian brethren. Uh, Sometimes it's to people, Paul to Timothy, Paul to Titus, Paul to Philemon, whatever the case might be. This is a little bit more mysterious here, trying to identify uh, the audience, because it's simply addressed to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Well, what in the world is he talking about? So it's not addressed to a specific church, but that's not unusual because you've got other letters in the New Testament that are addressed to kind of a, uh, uh, an uncertain group of people and not to a specific group. The letter to the Hebrews, for example, is not addressed to any specific group. Uh, the letters of Peter, First and 2 Peter, are not addressed to any specific group. Neither is a letter like 1 John. And so it's not uncommon to have this general type of audience where the letter would be more broadly circulated then, for example, to a particular church in a particular geographic location, and that's the case with James, uh, what you have to remember is that James was a pastor, of course, of this Jerusalem church, but what happened to that Jerusalem church? The Jerusalem church came under intense persecution uh, surrounding the controversy with respect to Stephen, Acts chapters 7 and 8, or 6 and 7, rather. And so Stephen, man, stirred up the dust, stirred up a hornet's nest. The Sanhedrin got all ticked off. And it was Stephen who was then martyred by stoning. All of that controversy led the Jewish establishment in the time to take out their frustrations on the church in Jerusalem. So they became victims of intense religious persecution, so much so that they had to do what? Anybody remember? They had to, they had to scatter. That's right. They had to disperse. And so these 12 tribes of the dispersion, I mean, James is using obviously very Jewish language here, but he's referring fundamentally to his own church, most of which would have been Christians who were saved out of what kind of background? A Jewish background. Almost all of the Christians in Jerusalem, not all of them, but the great majority were were Jews. They were ethnic Jews. So James, who was an ethnic Jew himself, just like Jesus was, he's using very Jewish language here, which we would expect him to use to describe the audience to whom he's writing. Yes, they're my people. Yes, they're the church. Yes, I'm their pastor. But we're all fundamentally ethnic Jews, and they didn't just give up their Jewishness because they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they were saved within this Jewish background. And that's another strong support, by the way, for James, the brother of Jesus, pastor of the Jerusalem church, as the author of this letter, because what this letter is, is a direct word of encouragement to James's scattered, troubled, persecuted church. His flock has been blown up. They've been blown out of their contact. Can you imagine if that were to happen to us? And COVID pretty much did it, right? COVID caused our little congregation here at the corner of Nine Mile and Guide and our other one over at Spanish Trail... To, get, to scatter, Confine, uh, con, and we were in the confines of our own homes. And so we had to figure out a way to get the gospel to you when you couldn't get to the gospel, amen. And that's why you have the letter to James, the same kind of thing, only theirs was a significant geographic distance because this church was scattered all over the Mediterranean world, places like Phoenicia and Cyprus and, and Antioch. And so James, as a pastor, knows his people are scattered, they're in new places, they're unsettled, they're probably very fearful, and they run the risk of assimilating back into a Greco-Roman culture. And so this pastor knows he's got to keep his people spiritually sharp because they're not with him. They can't gather together to hear him preach vocally a word. And so he writes this letter to them in this time of scattering and in this time of Trouble. And aren't you thankful that he did that? I mean, aren't you thankful that the Spirit of God not only inspired him to write this letter to his people, but that God also preserved it as this incredibly important piece of authoritative scripture, profitable and useful for all God's people in any and every. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later. Unpacking the very letter that that early pastor wrote to keep his people spiritually strong and spiritually focused in an otherwise chaotic situation. And so, that being the case, it's important for us to ask because it is a part of Holy Scripture and because it is important to us today to move to a third question namely, what does the letter communicate? Who wrote it? To whom was it written? What does the letter communicate? Well, here's the deal, buckle your seatbelts and hang in with me for the rest of the year. Because that's like the whole point of preaching a sermon series, is it not? Man, we're going to go through practically every line of this brief letter so that we can understand exactly what it communicates in great depth. But for today, let's just see if we can arrive at a general summary of the primary themes of the letter. It is a letter. I mean, we call it a letter, but frankly, James really reads more like a sermon. It's kind of like Ecclesiastes, what we just finished in that respect, because Ecclesiastes is this lengthy sermon, and the letter to James really is the same thing, because we call it a letter, but there's no greeting. You you ever notice how in Paul's letters, he's got all these people that he isolates, till so-and-so Paul says, hey... And greet so-and-so in the Lord. And what about these two ladies over here that are fighting all the time? Somebody get a hold of them and tell them to cut it out. There's none of that in James. He doesn't mention anybody other than his own name for the most part. So it is a letter. It's a piece of correspondence. But it really is a piece of correspondence that functions as a sermon to his people. Who again are not with him. No greeting. No prayers. No well wishes that were so common to understand and see in Paul's letters, for example. But if James is more of a sermon, what's his primary topic? I mean, what's the topic of his sermon? What's the key theme of his message? Well, that's not easy to understand. Here's the thing about James. James, he's a shotgun preacher. You know, some preachers preach with a rifle. Everything is tight, and it moves in a linear fashion toward the ultimate conclusion, and everything kind of stays together. And then some some preachers preach with a sawed-off shotgun where it's just all over the place and they jump around and they chase rabbits. Hillcrest used to have a preacher, those of you that have been around for a long time named Stan Pritchett, he used to chase rabbits all the time. And many of you remember, let me, let me chase this little rabbit over here down a hole. James chases rabbits as a preacher. He is all over the place. He'll be talking about one thing, shift gears, go off in a 90 degree angle. And then about 20 verses later, come right back to the same subject that he was talking about a few minutes before. (laughs) Very common. So it's really hard, unlike the letters of the apostle Paul, it's really hard to pigeonhole James into a particular theme. Like Galatians, it's all linear, right? Here's how a person is saved, justified by faith, justified by faith, justified by faith all the way through with a lot of practical application built in in the last two or three chapters. But James is not like that. So he deals with several different topics. But here's the thing if you have to boil it down to, to something that's common throughout James, I would say that James is most concerned with a couple of things the faithfulness and the spiritual integrity of God's holy people. Mark that down. He's most concerned with the faithfulness and the spiritual integrity. Of God's holy people. Now, remember the context. His church is scattered. They're in multiple cities, in multiple places, in new cultures for many of them. They're going to be confronted with new things, and his primary concern is to keep them spiritually walking the proper path, following Jesus Christ, living in an abiding relationship with Jesus, and behaving and acting accordingly. And so the message of the letter really boils down to this. Are you living as a friend of the world or are you living as a friend of God? That's really what James boils down to. Are you a friend of the world or are you a friend of God? Does your life reflect faithfulness to the kingdom of Christ or coziness with the world? Which will it be? The kingdom or the world? In this time of scattering, in this time where the pastor of the church can't be physically with them, to encourage them, to exhort them, to discipline them when need be. So this letter kind of becomes something of an elaboration of what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. You remember the statement in Matthew 6, 24, where Jesus says, no man can serve two what? Masters. That's James right there. Circle that verse in your notes. That's what James is getting at to his people. Be reminded of what our Lord said. No man can serve two masters. And where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said that was talking about ultimately God and money, James is talking about God in the world. You can either serve Christ or you can serve the devil. You can either live in the kingdom or live in the world and according to kingdom principles or according to worldly principles, but you cannot do both at the same time. That's the message of James in a nutshell. Now, I've mentioned to you before that as you study a biblical book, one of the good practices that every believer ought to uh, employ is the practice of kind of drilling down as you're reading the book. You read through it several times before you begin your study, and you try to find one verse or one passage that best uh, serves as the key interpretive verse. You can do that with most books of the Bible. What one statement is so critical that it helps unlock uh, the interpretive approach to all of the rest of the book. And it's a little harder to do in James because he is more of a shotgun guy. And he does tend to wander all over the place more than others. But to me, the key statement in the letter, the key verse of the letter is James 4.4. To me, this is the one that you've got to know to properly interpret the rest of the book. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's the verse you've got to commit because that's the one that helps you make sense of everything else that James says. Let's read that statement out loud together. It should be on the screen or it should be in your notes, either one. Together, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That conclusion right there is basic to everything James communicates in this letter concerning Christian wisdom, Christian ethics, Christian morals, Christian behavior. I mean, he's gonna talk about rejecting discrimination within the family of God. That's a kingdom principle. He's gonna talk about taming the tongue and speaking words that are edifying to others and glorifying to Christ. That's a kingdom principle, not a worldly principle. He's gonna talk about true faith always demonstrating itself in good works. He's gonna talk about leaving room for God's will when you make your own plans, never to plan your life independently of the will of God like the world does. That's a kingdom principle. He's gonna talk about humble submission before the Lord and learning to live with this very high view of the sovereignty of God James is going to talk about suffering for the cause of Christ. He's going to talk about that a lot. Enduring trials, something we're going to talk about this time next Sunday. Enduring trials with confidence and even with joy. Well, the world's never going to do that. That's not a worldly principle. That's a kingdom principle. And so James, what he's doing in this letter is he's kind of through, in a sermonic way, he's offering a Uh, uh, a word of warning to the people of God. Avoid being inconsistent in your walk with Christ. You're living in the world, but you ought not be of the world. How many of you have heard that before? Amen. That's the theme of James. Yeah, we're living in the world, but we're otherworldly people. We're not worldly people. We are kingdom people. And so when it comes to where your ultimate loyalty and where your ultimate allegiance lies, it ought not be with the world, with any world system, with any cultural moray, it ought not be with any worldly king. Your allegiance should be to God and to God alone. And with that as foundational in your life, no other gods before me, you need to live as people of spiritual integrity so that nobody can shoot an arrow at you that sticks. And clearly the motivation for this focused spiritual integrity and spiritual allegiance to God and to God alone, what's the motivation for that? Well, something that you also see running throughout the five chapters of James, and that is the certainty of the second coming of Christ and the certainty of the judgment of Christ. Y'all believe Jesus is coming again? I do too. James believed it. And he wanted his people to be reminded of it. He never uses the word second coming, but he sure alludes to it. And I tell you one word that he does use more than once, and that is the word judgment. Judgment. And so he's using these end times uh forms and illusions and images so that his people know, listen, <laughs> you're scattered out there, and no, you don't have your pastor with you, but don't let that tempt you to live like the devil. Now, your pastor's not going to catch you doing crazy things, but the Lord never leaves you, and the Lord never forsakes you, and the Lord is watching. In fact, James uses a statement. Look at James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then look what he says in verse nine. Behold, the judge is what? Say it out loud. Standing at the door. You think there's an urgency with that statement? That's James's way of saying, you better be careful how you live. In fact, Paul says that. Be very careful how you live. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time for the days are evil. James saying the same thing. Christ is coming he is judge. He will judge the living and the dead. And Christ our judge is standing at the door. He could come at any time. And wherever you may be, Phoenicia, uh, Macedonia, Antioch, wherever you may be, James says. Even remaining in Jerusalem, never forget, Jesus is coming. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, what? What? the judgment. That's right. So James encourages God's people, live with integrity, spiritual integrity, and live in light of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the soon coming of the certain judgment, which accompanies the coming of Christ. And never forget, as we've said many times from this very place, it's when you forget that Jesus is coming back that you start to live like he's not coming back. And so you always want to remember The judge is standing at the door. Everybody with me so far? All right, we've seen who wrote the letter. We've seen to whom the letter was written. We've addressed some of what the letter communicates. This concern about the faithfulness and the spiritual integrity of God's holy people living in light of the soon coming of Jesus Christ and the judgment to come. Then finally, just a brief word, as to why the letter is important. Why is James important? Well, there's obviously a whole lot we could identify here, but let me highlight the importance of James with just three statements should be in your notes this morning. First of all, James is important for what it teaches us about God, for what it teaches us about God. Now, what's ironic here is that especially given the relation, I mean, the earthly relationship between James and Jesus, because like, Remember, James is the half brother of Jesus. That the name of Jesus is only mentioned twice in the letter of James. Right there at the very beginning of James, and so you'd expect that James would be tossing the name of Jesus. Now he alludes to Jesus in a lot of places, but he only uses his name twice. And how many times does James mention, uh, James mention the Holy Spirit in the letter to James? Anybody know? Zero. The Holy Spirit is never even mentioned in the letter to James, but who is in there over and over again? God the Father. And you know why that probably is the case? Because James was just a strong Jew. I mean, Jews had this high and exalted view of the unity of God. God, I mean, that's in the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter six. The Lord, the Lord our God is what? One. So James has this very high view of the sovereignty of God and he makes much of the one true God the true and living God who is God to James where you're going to find that God is the almighty creator God lord of heaven and earth you're going to find that God is a merciful and a loving and a compassionate God you're going to find that James sees God as a God who gives every good and perfect gift comes down from the uh, above from the father Who never changes. That's in the book of James, right near the very beginning. But he also sees God as a God who heals. Is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray. And the Lord will save the one who is sick. He's also a jealous God, James will tell us. And again, this gets back to this motivation of James to keep people focused in their time of scattering and in their time of persecution, particularly in the Greco-Roman world where polytheism, the worship of multiple gods, was rampant. The last thing that he wanted was for them to start inviting idols into their home. And so he's going to remind them that God is the one God, the true and the living God, the only wise God, and that he's a jealous God who suffers no other God before him. But he's also our final judge, as we mentioned just a moment ago. And James is very concerned that the people of God worship the true and living God wholly, acceptably, and righteously. So James is important for what it teaches us about God. God the Father is all over the book. Second, James is important for what it teaches us about faith. a lot about faith, a lot about faith and works, uh, in James. In fact, the relationship between faith and works looms very large in the second chapter of James. And to this day, it's the most controversial part of the letter. In fact, James's words in James chapter two may be the most controversial statement in the whole new Testament, the whole new Testament, more head scratching has gone on at what James has said. Dr. Martin Luther, the great reformer of Germany during the 16th century, uh, was sketchy about James primarily because of what was in chapter two. And he often joked that he would give his doctor's cap to whoever could reconcile Paul's teaching about justification and James's teaching about justification because he practically gave up trying to fit them together. But as I read it, and as I read what the rest of the New Testament has to say, my conclusion is that Dr. Martin Luther just got up on the wrong side of the bed because it really is not that hard. James doesn't really say anything differently than what Paul says. He just emphasizes it more dramatically than Paul does. He emphasizes, here's the concept, write this down, obedient faith. Obedient faith. That's all James is talking about. We'll get into more about that later. But James believes in a faith that demonstrates its authenticity by what it does. What does James say? Faith without works is what? dead. So he's all about obedient faith. Well, obedient faith is exactly Paul's language in the first chapter of Romans. Paul believed the same thing. Kurt Richardson said it this way, and I know it says Doug Moo in your notes, and that's the pastor's fault. I got my citations mixed up. But whoever, it's a great statement. He says, James was concerned with the consistency of genuine faith as evidenced by its results that faith should be what? Say it out loud. Faith should be active, watch this, not a mere what? See, anybody can walk around professing faith, that doesn't mean they have it. You ought always be able to tell. Faith ought always be evidenced by its obedience. More about that when we get to chapter two. Third, and then most obviously, and finally, James is important for what it teaches us about kingdom ethics kingdom ethics. I've entitled today's message, just tell me what to do. Tell me how to live. Tell me how I need to conduct myself in order to look like Christ. Well, that's the book of James. People love it because it's so practical. It's so down to earth. We're calling this series grassroots theology because in no other place in the New Testament like James, this particular book comes right down to the real world where we are, and it helps us to know how to live in order to reflect well on the Lord. James is a book of commands, remember? A bunch of them. And one of the most recognizable is the familiar statement of chapter one be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Many of you who have studied the Bible for a while know that James reads very much like the Sermon on the Mount. I think James was very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, when you read James, you ought to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Read them concurrently because they read very similarly. The Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' most uh, recognized teaching, is about kingdom ethics. It's about how to live as a believer. And James just takes off on that. There's no question he was very familiar with the teaching of his half-brother. I mean, wasn't it Jesus who taught, Matthew 7, 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and what? Say it out loud. Everyone who hears these words of mine and, aha, everyone who hears them and does them, faith without works is what? Dead. Everyone who hears and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house up on the rock. So be doers of the word and not merely hearers only because that's self-deceptive faith. It's not real. So while James doesn't mention Jesus very often, Jesus is all over James from start to finish as James clearly understands the teaching of his brother. You, to use his phrase, uh, James addresses, uh, to use his language, double-minded Christianity. Many of you will remember that phrase, don't be a double-minded man, unstable in all you do. And double-minded, uh, double-mindedness is this approach that tries to live with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world at the same time, and we're very bad about it. That's double-minded Christianity. I want to live as a kingdom believer. I just don't want my friends to know it. I want to honor Christ with my life, but I want to live like my buddies. Now, that's double-minded Christianity. And the Bible says you're an unstable person if you try to live that way. And James reminds us in the face of double-minded Christianity that the judge is standing at the door. And James wants us to know what you do with your life really does matter. He addresses a proper ethical response, kingdom ethics, to five key concepts. Write these down. I'm just going to give them to you this morning. This is the ethical focus of James. He's going to talk about trials, how to conduct yourself when times are tough. Anybody need that in the house? Amen. He's going to talk about speech. Anybody still have a problem guarding what they say, how they say it? I don't hear many amens. That's everybody in the house. Then he's going to talk about wealth, important for American Christians. And we're all wealthy in the house compared to the rest of the world. That's you. So he's going to talk about wealth and poverty. He's going to talk about mercy. Being merciful as a person, showing mercy. In this world, in 2021, do we need that? Yeah. Yeah, we do, and then finally he's going to talk about prayer. Anybody need help with their prayer life? Anybody in the house wish they prayed more fervently and earnestly, and wishes that they were more of a prayer warrior? My hand is up too. So this is, is this stuff that we need today. Is it any wonder why people gravitate themselves to James? Because James, man, it's like reading a modern newspaper. It's just fresh. It's up to the minute. Nothing has gone out of style. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And James is going to help us through these critical life struggles that we all face. Well, that's the best I can do in giving you the letter of James in a nutshell. I hope that made sense this morning. But I think it's important to kind of get our arms around it before we just dive into it. And if you're here this morning and you just want somebody spiritually Just tell me what to do as it relates to how to think and how to speak and how to live. Then James is just right for you. Just remember, as we begin this study, that you heard it first here. James is hard, but thank God James will be worth it. This is God's Word And let all God's people say, amen Amen and amen.